Welcome to the Rights Up podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub at the University of Oxford. My name is Ilham Tajassir Ali, and I'm a podcast research assistant at the Hub. Today, we will be joined by Alison Corkery and Marie Emilia Mamberti at the Center for Economic and Social Rights. Today, we will be talking about human rights and fiscal policy, focusing in on what human rights brings to the current cost of living crisis. Thank you so much for joining me today, Alison and Marie Emilia. Would you mind giving the listeners a brief description of what you do at the center, Alison? Um, so I'm the Director of Strategy and Learning at the Center for Economic and Social Rights. And Marie Emilia? So I am a program officer at the Center for Economic and Social Rights, uh, where I coordinate the work on fiscal justice um, in Latin America. Thank you. So the first question that I have for you is, Prices are skyrocketing for basic human goods, um, food, housing, fuel, and causing immense suffering. What do human rights bring to this economic crisis? Um, so, yeah, so the I think the kind of first key message is that this is very much a human rights crisis. Um, and then the second is to the second message I think that's important to to state is that um, you know what are human rights and what do human rights bring to this um, to, to to this crisis? Because obviously they're not going to be the panacea or the silver bullet that is going to solve everything. Um, and in our work, what we really try and stress is that human rights are, are multi-dimensional concepts. They're they're moral claims, um, they're political demands, um, and they're they're legal obligations, which is um, a lot of the way that that we think about them in our work. Um, and and in this way, they're a tool. So so they're a tool that can help us challenge the powers that are denying people the conditions they need um, to live a life of of dignity. Um, and, and in our work, we, we leverage this tool in particular, the, the tool of rights, in, in two key ways. One is as a tool for analysis, um, and the second is as a tool for action. Um, so as a tool for analysis, I'd say what rights brings to our understanding of, of the economic crisis is that first and foremost, it focuses us on people. Um, it takes us away from some of these abstract numbers like inflation rates, like productivity levels, like currency fluctuations or, or economic contractions. And it really focuses on the everyday impacts that this is having on, on lives and livelihoods. Importantly, it also reveals that not everyone is being impacted or affected equally, um, and we're really seeing how social inequities and economic inequities are, are intersecting in, in the way that, that, these, that the crisis is playing out. Um, so that's the, the first. It, it looks at the impacts and then helps us analyze the impacts, but it also helps us analyze the causes of the crisis. You know, the, the rights framework emphasizes the, the, the duties that flow from, from rights, and those are duties to respect, protect, and fulfill people's rights. And we can see the degree to which those duties aren't being upheld, um, whether it's the conduct of states who are you know, dragging their feet in terms of taking swift action to protect households from rising living costs. Um, we can see that in the conduct of corporations, you know, in, in a context of kind of weak regulations are, are creating the, the opportunities for financial speculation that's driving up prices. Um, and we can see that at the international level too, and looking at the conduct of international institutions where there's a lot of, kind of stagnation and deadlock around um, the action like debt relief and, and climate financing that's needed to get through, um, through this crisis. So the bottom line, I think, is that you know, analytically, rights help us see that the free market is not the effective distributor um, of essential goods and services and, and resources within and across countries. 
Um, secondly, as a tool for action, that's the second way we use uh, rights in our work. And it's the, the emphasis that it places on our equal worth and common humanity that can show the connection between the various manifestations of this crisis that, like, that, that are very context specific, but share this, this common root cause. Um, and in the shorter term, that can help us in you know, assessing the fairness of choices that are being made to provide immediate relief, but also in the longer term, um, this it's a political tool that, that can unite demands for kind of bigger, broader um, calls for transforming the economy. Thank you so much. Um, so traditionally, fiscal policy has been seen as a matter of politics, whereas human rights um, have been considered a matter of law. So why is the separation um, potentially problematic? I'm going to start on this answer and then um, hand over to Maria Amelia to say to say a bit more specifically on 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 the fiscal policy. Um, but I think it's important to, to just to frame that question slightly slightly differently. Um, so not so much in our we don't see so much in our work that you know a clear separation in in that sense, but. There certainly is, uh, has been a bit more of an agnosticism about the economics of human rights um, from the human rights community in the past. Um, so the, the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, for example, um, issued a general comment um, in the early 90s saying that the covenant is neutral as to the economic model that a state adopts. And it cannot be seen as supporting either a socialist or a capitalist system or a mixed or centrally planned or laissez-faire economy. Um, and even though this is a statement that's made in a very particular political context of um, you know, the end of the Cold War and the kind of rise of neoliberalism at the time and an attempt to appeal to um, a diverse set of, of, of member states, the legacy of this position, you know, we still feel. Um, and often what that looks like is a sense that states deserve a much wider or broader margin of discretion when it comes to economic policy making, as compared to other areas of a kind of social policy or um, justice, you know, justice policy or, or, or other um, interventions that the state's making. But I think you know what one one key thing that we've really um, focused in on in our work is the message that you know there there's no doubt that the that there's a connection between economic policy and human rights, um, and that includes the fiscal policy choices that governments are making, and the protections and entitlements that are enshrined in international human rights law can shape what is fair and equitable in terms of the economic policy decisions um, that governments are making. Uh, so yes, as you mentioned, like traditionally, there's been this like vague separation of reading fiscal policy as the like fully political issue in the sense that it's like fully discretionary for um, states, like states can do whatever they want when they conduct um, their fiscal affairs. And uh, human rights would not have a say in, um, in this regard. And as Alison mentioned, this has been like challenged and proven wrong, uh, but it's it, it's very problematic because it centrally misses the point that rights in paper would not translate into materials effects uh, per se. Uh, and the first most obvious reason is that rights need um, resources to be implemented. We need to finance rights, not only social and economic rights, but all human rights. And different uh, United Nations mechanisms uh, have been putting uh, this. But it's not only this very obvious uh, relationship between rights needing money to be implemented that is in place with fiscal policy, but also like there are other points of connections uh, between these two um, traditionally uh, separated words. 
fiscal policy can, for instance, incentivize or disincentivize um, behavior that can lead to either like rights fulfillment or unfulfillment. Uh, there are many examples of this, like the most obvious have to do with like green taxes or taxes uh, that can promote the right to health as sugary drink taxes, uh, and the list can go on and on. Uh, fiscal policy is also a tool to promote equality and non-discrimination and equality are at the heart of, of the human rights uh, framework and project and fiscal policy plays a fundamental role um, in this regard. Perfect. Um, both of your answers were actually really incredible and enlightening, and I just want to use them as a jumping off point into my next question, which is in May 2021, a group of organizations and experts produced the Principles for Human Rights and Fiscal Policy, which was a game-changing tool that distills the fundamental human rights concepts into specific guidelines for fiscal policy creation, implementation, and assessment. Can either of you just tell me and um, just a little bit more about that? Sure, I can, I can do that. I'm happy to talk about the, uh, the Principles for Human Rights and Fiscal Policy, and I love how you describe them as a game-changing tool because we really feel um, like that uh, about them. Uh, so the principles uh, were really the result uh, of many years of collaboration among different um, civil society organizations uh, throughout the region. Uh, what we realized through these years of like asking for thematic hearings before the Inter-American Commission and doing like reports and um, fiscal justice and human rights was that actually there was like there were more standards that could like help guide. Uh, fiscal policy in a human rights aligned way than we imagined. So there had been like substantive progress and, but it was not like systematized in a way that could like really help um, governments uh, guide uh, their, their policymaking and organizations uh, like streamline their, their claims um, around fiscal justice. Uh, so what we decided to do is to come up uh, with a document that gathers those standards and presented them um, in a systematic and practical way uh, to really show the efforts, their results uh, that have been made throughout the years. Uh, and what we thought was that like the, the, a collective approach to this process was uh, the way to go um, around it. Uh, so initially, seven organizations um, gathered, two organizations from Argentina, ASIF and CELS, a Brazilian organization, UNESCO, an organization from Colombia, the Justicia, another one from Mexico, Fundar, we at CSR, and the uh, Regional uh, Network for Fiscal Justice in Latin America. Um, we joined <laughs> to, do, to do this work and then um, included in the project a group of experts from different like backgrounds and disciplines and countries um, across the region. Um, to come up with this um, document. Uh, and the process ended up being longer than expected, of course, and included like a three, three intense uh, years of like dialogues and um, research to finally uh, launch, as you said, on May 2021. The principles, which ended up being uh, a very detailed <laughs> document with 15 core principles that try to um, systematize and replicate what um, human rights both at the global and regional level had been uh, saying lately about how to align fiscal policy uh, with rights um, demands. And these principles, uh, which are which tend to be normative or reflect existing law, uh, 
are paired with guidelines, uh, which are more like policy oriented or, or action oriented and build uh, on a, a wider set of sources that are not necessarily uh, normative, but in general, like, like good practices or innovative research and, and, other, and other sources. Thank you. Um, it's really incredible seeing something like this come into fruition. And I'm just wondering what systems would be in place that hold governments accountable for upholding these principles, if there's any such system in place? There are like really uh, many at the local, regional, international level. And the opportunities that open up uh, when like being aware of these standards are really infinite. Uh, many of these approaches or, or um, systems in place are more legalistic, uh, let's say like litigation, and they could be based on the more uh, normative content of the, of the principles as I mentioned. And many, many others are like not as legalistic and can build on the guidelines. Uh, for instance, our partners at Mexico in Fundar uh, use the principles to base a campaign that included like artistic presentations and general like awareness raising uh, actions to remove VAT um, uh, from menstrual uh, hygiene products uh, in, in Mexico, building on equality arguments that are presented in, in the principles. Um, there's also like regional work that we are engaging with, uh, for instance, with the Inter-American um, Commission and especially with the Special Rapporteur on Economic and Social and Cultural Rights, uh, who is very active in issuing like reports and statements and recommendations to government. We, we've been using um, the, the principles as a source to present to new governments in Latin America who seem to be open um, for, to the general like framework and ideas and are working on um, tax reforms. Uh, we believe, for instance, um, that the principles can be like a, a roadmap in approaching um, uh, tax and fiscal uh, reforms in these countries in a way that promotes accountability for, uh, from governments for the human rights obligations. So the fourth principle states that fiscal policy should be environmentally sustainable. And we have seen the energy crisis prompting renewed call, um, calls for coal and for fracking and for countries whose GDP is dependent on environmentally harmful policies, um, such as the extraction and trade of crude oil. How can this principle be met, particularly during a global cost of living crisis? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think the example that, that you give of the current crisis really highlights one of the key principles of human rights, which is of indivisibility and interdependence. Um, and because of that, you know, there's a need to assess policy interventions holistically. Um, so interventions that can look like they're protecting rights in the short term actually are just kind of quick fix band-aid solutions. Um, that would undermine um, rights in the long term, um, in particular right to a, to a healthy environment. Um, and, and so, you know, we know that to guarantee that right, to guarantee the right to a healthy environment, countries need to significantly accelerate their efforts to reduce um, greenhouse gas emission. And the question in the context of the topic we're talking about today is, okay, what does that mean for fiscal policy? What role does fiscal policy play um, in, in decarbonization and in transitioning to, um, to cleaner energy? 
Um, and a framework that comes from the tax justice movement that we've incorporated into our work and given a, you know, a, a human rights lens um, is this idea that, um, that fiscal policy has four purposes and they all start with R. So it's called the four R's. Um, Maria Amelia already has touched on them a little bit. Um, those are resources, redistribution, repricing and representation. So resourcing is, is the most direct and obvious way um, that, that fiscal policy plays a role um, in, in, the in the environmental context. It can increase or decrease revenue that impacts on what's available to whom and where. And so it can direct, fiscal policy can direct resources towards mitigation and adaptation efforts. Um, and that's the kind of the first and, and most direct role that, that, that fiscal policy can play. The second is, is redistribution, which means you know, curbing inequalities by tackling the concentration of resources at the top and spreading benefits across society. And again, in the environmental context, there's a lot of um, discussion around policy proposals that are focused on um, capturing the profits from natural resource extraction um, and eliminating or, or reducing at least um, fossil fuel subsidies so that, so that profits in, in destructive industries are, are, are not um, maintained. Um, repricing, Maria Mila already mentioned, so that's about kind of incentivizing or disincentivizing different behaviors and in the environmental context, um, that's a, a fiscal policy um, tool that, that governments can use to stimulate investment in renewable energies and in green industrialization. Um, and the fourth is, is representation, you know, based on the idea that as taxpayers, we have a vested interest in holding governments accountable for how they're raising and spending money. Um, and you know, that, that translates very clearly in, into context of, of debates around um, responses to climate change. Um, and in particular, the need for policymaking to be more transparent, more participatory and less captured by, by corporate interests. And just jumping off of this previous question. So when states don't have the economic resources to implement these policies, what can they do? What is in, within their power to do? Um, that's a great question, and I think it should be first addressed uh, with another question, <laughs> that is that what do we really mean uh, when we say that states don't have the resources for X um, rights aligned policy, because this is a claim that is um, often repeated, but uh, not so often met with sufficient scrutiny as to its truth. Uh, or to its uh, like full meaning uh, so human rights are like really very valuable in incentivizing policymakers uh, to really scrutinize um, what, what they mean uh, or to what extent um, states don't have resources to meet um, X or Y uh, policies. Uh, so using, for instance, the principles um, for human rights and fiscal policy, uh, a first thing that states should do is to really assess in an informed and participatory manner the resources that are needed uh, for rights fulfillment. And this is not always done, and I guess it's not like really easy when you are like the head of a state. Uh, but a first step is that to, to really understand what you need uh, to uh, fulfill rights instead of thinking about it the other way, to fulfill rights only to the extent that the resources you have at hand um, permit. Uh, here, uh, a standard that the UN uh, Economic and Social Rights Committee has repeated uh, frequently in the last decade is that um, the maximum available resources that states should use as per the covenant are not existing resources, all right? So 
uh, states have the capacity, the capacity to reasonably expand uh, their fiscal space, and they should do that in order to um, meet their human rights obligations. And there are many ways to expand a uh, fiscal space that are uh, aligned uh, with human rights um, obligations. And, um, and the principles and guidelines mention many of those uh, measures, uh, which would include uh, increasing tax collection through progressive taxes, combating uh, tax evasion and, avo and avoidance, relocating spending from not non-rights uh, related spending to human rights related spending, uh, using international cooperation uh, to fulfill um, rights uh, and other uh, like sources that are, of course, like context uh, specific. Uh, some countries could issue money and that could be aligned with human rights in some contexts, some, some others would not. But the, the bottom line is that uh, we should first assess the resources that are needed. And then if existing resources are not enough, we should expand those resources available by relying on this uh, rights-aligned um, measures. So I just want to just shift the conversation to the UK. With the rising energy bills and the multi-sector industrial action, what would be an ideal example of a rights-based fiscal policy that can be implemented to benefit civilians, workers and the state? Yeah, it's a it's a hard question to answer, and there's a few reasons for that. You know, one one is obviously that there isn't a one size fits all um, kind of prescription that you can take from human rights law and you know transplant um, into into different country contexts. Um, you know, policy needs to be designed through an uh, you know, in inclusive, participatory, democratic process. Um, and and thinking about you know a response to something like the cost of living crisis that said earlier you know we need to think holistically um one policy intervention is going to trigger um a lot of other questions you know around it and there's kind of a bigger redistributive um goal that that i think um an, an ideal response um should be looking at um so with with those kind of caveats and disclaimers it's cheating a little bit but i think um coming back to this this 4r framework that's a a kind of a useful um, way to give at least some of the characteristics of what an ideal kind of policy response would look like. Um, and I'd say the ideal first and foremost needs to boost revenue in order to be protecting households through a comprehensive program um, of a mix of you know, income support or subsidized goods or expanded public services. Um, that, that, that there needs to also be redistribution quite clearly. Um, in the UK, the example of the windfall tax, there's a 25% windfall tax that's been introduced on the profits of UK energy firms that will last for now until May next year. You know, that's an important starting point, um, but it's a starting point. It's a step in the right direction. And there's certainly a lot more scope for redistribution to ensure that the wealthy, um, whether it's corporations or individuals, are being taxed and are paying their fair share. Um, and then the third around re repricing, I think there's scope in particular for ideal policy interventions to be thinking about not just the immediate response to the crisis, but what kind of broader, longer term systemic change should, should it be encouraging. Um, so, for example, if governments are issuing loans or grants or bailouts to, to the private sector in response to the um, cost of living crisis, that can come with strings attached. There can be conditions um, that demand that the, that, that the private sector is reinvesting any profits that it's making through those programs um, that can um, support a, a green energy transition. 
So, so that's that's what an ideal um, policy response might look like in the UK context. But I think the other point to remember is that this is a global crisis and requires a global response. Um, so it's also important to think about what global policies the UK could be championing that can expand the fiscal space of other countries, um, in particular countries in the global south, so that they're able to invest the measures um, that are necessary to respond to the cost of living crisis. And that um, includes things like like widespread debt relief um, and also um, reforms to, to global tax law. So on, on the point about thinking globally, um, Maria Amelia did already touch on this, but just to emphasize it again, you know, states' human rights obligations don't stop at their borders. Um, they do have extraterritorial obligations. And when their actions are going to impact on people in other countries, um, the duties around respecting, protecting, and fulfilling um, human rights um, also are at play there. So, so, the, so the decisions that are being taken at the global level also need to be interrogated through a human rights lens too. Thank you so much. And just on that note of thinking globally, um, because the principles mainly focus on Latin America and the Caribbean, what can be learned from these states that will be illuminating for other contexts? Oh, thank you for, for that question. Uh, I think there's there's like different levels of learnings that can um, help in the uh, movements and actions in other uh, regions. And one has to do with like the power of collective mobilization and cooperation at the civil society level. Um, so the, the initiative that uh, hosts the principles, I think it's a, a very successful uh, example of how organizations with different like realities and agendas can cooperate um, with, with a common goal and can do like uh, regional work in a way that is both like respectful of their like local uh, realities and agendas but also uh, helpful in building like collective um, knowledge and power uh, that is really needed to challenge policies that have been there uh, for, for decades, uh, if not centuries, and have like very deep roots uh, that require a lot of like corporate, um, cooperation uh, to be challenged. Uh, then uh, I think that Latin America is a good example of appropriation um, by like local activists uh, of the rights approach and the rights of discourse in a way that is like very uh, vernacularized. Uh, and it, it has helped, for instance, uh, promote very successful litigation in the field of fiscal transparency. Uh, that other frame, frameworks that are not like so normative uh, as the rice framework, which is like, of course like one aspect of the rice framework, but it is there, uh, would not have been like so helpful um, uh, to support uh, these claims that often have been successful like um, in courts and Latin America is a good example of like courts cooperating uh, with, with movements and activists to promote uh, this goal. I think uh, that Latin America can also be uh, a nice example of some successful measures in the context of like fiscal policy being taken uh, in a landscape of uh, diminished um, state capacity and the response to COVID uh, ha has been very uh, like illustrative uh, of that. Uh, we can delve um, later into some examples of the COVID responses, but in general, there are like many promising examples of measures that can be taken even by states that are in a context of like crisis um, or diminished capacity, as I said. Uh, and then I think that uh, this initiative and in general, the work, um, the coordinated work at the regional level 
is helpful in showing how while it's very important to tailor fiscal responses to the uh, context specific uh, needs of each like country and area of, of each country, uh, then human rights are still powerful in, in providing like the general like guidelines or analytical frameworks uh, to find the best like policy responses to each context. So Latin American countries have different like fiscal issues uh, in terms of like the things they need to address uh, more prominently, but still they can all benefit from the framework uh, that the human rights uh, provide when thinking uh, in how to reform or address the different challenges they have. Thank you so much. There's definitely lots to learn um, from the Latin American context. And I just was wanted to kind of press a little bit more about the role of civil society and civilians at large. So is there anything that can be done on the civilian level that can help us realize this goal of moving towards a rights-based economy? Yes, absolutely, um, is the short answer to that question. Um, just to say a word or two about what we mean when we're talking about a rights-based economy. Um, this is a concept um, that we're focusing on in our work and is really the centerpiece of the current strategy of the Centre for Economic and Social Rights, which is to envisage a rights-based economy and, and catalyze action towards it. Um, and the reason we felt that was really important to do is that us in the human rights movement tend to be a lot better at calling out what we don't want rather than spelling out what we do. Um, we're, we're good critics, um, but we're less visionary often. Um, and so we thought it, to, to kind of counter that tendency, it was really important that we work collaboratively with our partners and allies to paint a much clearer and more tangible picture of what the world would look like and what it would feel like and what it would be like if human rights really were grounding um, economic policy choices that governments were making at the national, regional and international level. Um, so that's what we mean when we talk about a rights-based economy. And you can see it really as the idea of, of systems change, um, of, of really you know, quite a radical transformation to the way things are done. Um, and in, in the systems change approach, you're trying to intervene in the current system um, at multiple levels. Um, so you're trying to shift kind of deep held narratives around the way things should work. Um, you're trying to reform like specific policies that can create pathways towards um, transformation. And you're trying to make the case for change by, by gathering evidence and, and, and leveraging it through, um, through different uh, accountability channels and through kind of broader um, mobilization and, and organizing. Um, and, and we see kind of the, the building of, of broad popular support for, for those interventions across those levels as, as really, really critical. You know, this isn't the kind of change that one organization or a handful of organizations can, can, can make on their own. It, it does really need kind of mass, broad, collective power building. Um, and so for us, what that looks like in our work is really trying to build connections beyond the human rights movement um, and, and, and look for, for opportunities to engage with and learn from um, other social justice work that's happening in, in different spaces and at, at different levels. Um, and, and that to, in order to be able to do that, in order to be able to build some of those connections and, for, and, and you know, forge those relationships, um, some of the ingredients we've found that are really have been really important is around kind of deepening economic literacy amongst the human rights community. And I imagine a lot of kind of listeners of this podcast kind of self-identify as being part of the human rights community. So really 
thinking about and engaging with and understanding the economy and economic policy making as a key um, battleground for for human rights activism, I'd say is is one way of engaging um, with with different groups and individuals and communities um, to advance a rice-based economy. Um, and the other, which is you know a big part of the principles and guidelines, and Maria Amelia already spoke about a bit, is making rights meaningful to actors outside the human rights community. So moving away from the more kind of traditional legalistic kind of normative work to that translation into the you know, specific policy demands or the kind of broader public campaigns um, that can shift thinking around who the economy is for and, and what how it's supposed to work and how it can be redesigned to, to benefit the many. Perfect. And just some final thoughts. Um... We just want to learn a little bit more about what lessons can be learned from the COVID-19 pandemic with regards to how fiscal policy has impacted human rights in various states. So a first like uh, learning is a refresher of how important uh, extraterritorial obligations are in this field. As Alison mentioned, uh, like states under international law don't only have obligations before the people who live within their borders, but also uh, for people living outside them and COVID has like really shown in a very taken way uh, the impact uh, that the decisions that states uh, make often without consideration uh, of uh, what will happen uh, in other places of the world um, can have. Uh, with that like general uh, refresher um, said, uh, we did uh, look into concrete uh, fiscal measures taken as a response to COVID in a report we did at the initiative um, um, in Latin America, and they're like different uh, learning, some really interesting, some not so promising. Uh, but overall, we think that COVID uh, has helped uh, combat or dismantle some dogmas that had to do with fiscal policy in some very or orthodox um, like spaces uh, in which like having expansive uh, fiscal policies as a response to a crisis wouldn't have been imaginable in other contexts. And I think like the, the pandemic has, uh, has been helpful in showing that, that, that there are other ways forward and the world will not end because of having expansive um, fiscal policies in place. Um, and it like also show like the, the feasibility uh, of putting in place uh, some rights aligned fiscal measures that often are met uh, with skepticism at the national level, such as uh, like wealth taxes, uh, which in cases uh, such an uh, such as Argentina uh, have proven to, to have um, very good effects, both in terms of the uh, revenue that has been gathered and the impacts on um, quality that those taxes have had. Uh, however, what we found is that many of those right-aligned measures were only temporary in nature, and the opportunity to really make structural reforms that tackle like long-standing and historical problems in fiscal policy in the region uh, has been missed. Um, other problems that we identify and learn from this COVID response have to do with more like structural uh, issues, such as lack of coordination among state agencies. Uh, it seems to be the case that regardless of the advances we've made in linking fiscal policy and human rights, fiscal decisions are still like largely made by ministers of finance or economy, and there's like little consultation on coordination with uh, rights. Uh, related areas um, of government um, that is something that could be improved uh, in the future to like really land uh, what connecting fiscal policy and rights is in government uh, policy making 
And then a final learning uh, from this uh, report that I mentioned before has to do with uh, some gains that have been made in the, in the field of gender equality uh, and taxation. So many of the fiscal measures taken by governments do incorporate uh, a gender perspective. Um, however, this perspective is absent when you look at um, other groups uh, like migrants. Many of the measures taken as a response to COVID have been like openly discriminatory towards um, migrants. Uh, so there's some, there are some advances in some fields, but still a huge uh, road ahead uh, to improve. Yeah, I would say the key takeaways for me are perhaps even less optimistic than Maria Emilia's examples um, just now. I think it, it's very true that it, it did challenge conventional thinking around fiscal policy and opened up the space for reforms that wouldn't have been feasible pre-pandemic. But for me, the big takeaway is that the scale of intervention is still so far from, from what it is that we needed. The measures that have been taken still are kind of trinkering around the edges, so to speak. Um, and the some of the data or the estimates that, that Oxfam has, has shared really, I think, make that point so, so vividly. Um, you know, by their estimates, um, during the pandemic, every 30 hours, a new billionaire was created. Um, while the estimates are currently that every 33 hours, a million people are being pushed into poverty. So the, the, the very gross concentration of resources just got increasingly amplified um, over the course of the pandemic. Um, and the, the action that's necessary to reverse that trend needs to be very broad and very transformative and very high on the human rights agenda. Thank you so, so much, um, Alison and Marie Amelia. We often think of fiscal policy and human rights as mutually exclusive realms in the state, and you have provided us with a different perspective on how we view the economy and human rights. Thank you for making the time to catch up with me today and sharing your expertise with all of us here at the Oxford Human Rights Hub and with our listeners. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Megan Campbell. This episode was produced by Sophie Smith and hosted by Ilham Pajisir Ali. Music for the series is by Rosemary Allman. Show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Dobie. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts.